welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get straight into it with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the general surgical curriculum, and the operation or topic we'll be covering today is hepatocellular carcinoma. It's a little bit of introduction about hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC. Hepatocellular carcinoma is the most common primary liver malignancy, accounting for about 90% of liver tumors. It's the sixth most common cancer worldwide and is more common in patients with underlying liver cirrhosis. Saying that, however, about 10 to 20% of HCC tumors arise in livers that don't have cirrhosis. What are the risk factors for the development of hepatocellular carcinoma? The main one is cirrhosis, and that can be from any cause, from hepatitis B or C virus, from alcohol abuse, and from non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And this pathology is becoming a bigger and bigger problem in the Western developed world. Additional risk factors include having diabetes, being a man, other liver conditions such as alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, hemochromatosis, oral contraceptive pill and androgen exposures, and cirrhosis of other causes such as primary biliary cirrhosis and autoimmune hepatitis. There's also a carcinogen that's associated with the development of HCC, and this is aflatoxin, which is a family of toxins that are produced by fungi such as Aspergillus flavus, and that is found on corn, peanuts, cottonseed, and tree nuts. And this happens in warm and humid regions of the world. Interestingly, with the treatment options we now have for hepatitis C virus, this is becoming a less common cause of hepatocellular carcinoma in the world. And patients who have a sustained virological response have a reduced risk or incidence of development of hepatocellular carcinoma. And one other interesting thing to note is that with hepatitis B virus infection and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, these patients can develop HCCs even without liver cirrhosis. So how do patients with HCC present? So patients may be asymptomatic because in Australia, we screen patients who have hepatitis and have liver cirrhosis from any cause for the development of hepatocellular carcinoma with a six-monthly ultrasound and blood test for alpha-fetoprotein or AFP. Patients may also have right upper quadrant pain, weight loss, a palpable mass, and systemic symptoms such as anorexia, nausea, and lethargy. It's rare, but these tumors can rupture, leading to a sudden onset of pain. They can also cause obstructive jaundice and deranged LFTs. And if they erode into blood vessels and bile ducts, they can present with hemobilia. So I'm just going to take a little segue into the histopathology of hepatocellular carcinoma, but also a comment on the pre-neoplastic lesions that are thought to be the precancerous lesions that can develop in the liver as part of the pathway of development of hepatocellular carcinoma. This pathway is thought to be a pathway from microscopic dysplastic foci 
to dysplastic nodules with low-grade dysplasia and then dysplastic nodules with high-grade dysplasia to early HCC, less than two centimetres in size, and then to a full-blown HCC. So the two pre-neoplastic lesions I want to talk about are microscopic dysplastic foci and macroscopic dysplastic nodules. So microscopic dysplastic foci are tiny, less than one millimeter lesions, which occur commonly in cirrhosis. As the name suggests, they are microscopic, so not visible with the naked eye, lesions that are characterized by abnormal dysplastic liver cells or hepatocytes. And these are typically found on histological specimens incidentally. So the next type of precursor lesion are dysplastic nodules or macroscopic dysplastic nodules. And as the name suggests, these are nodules that range from two millimeters to two centimeters in size that can be found in the cirrhotic liver. These can be classified as either low-grade dysplastic nodules or high-grade dysplastic nodules, depending on the degree of cellular atypia and architectural distortion that they show. Basically, these are called precursor lesions because histopathologically, they're not definitely meeting the criteria for a malignancy. So in the same way, a adenomatous polyp, for example, can progress through stages of dysplasia and become more and more dysplastic prior to turning into a cancer, these dysplastic nodules can do the same thing. Low-grade nodules are typically about a centimetre in size or less, and they have a lower likelihood of becoming a malignancy. High-grade nodules are typically larger, one to two centimetres, and are considered precancerous lesions. Under the microscope, they have increased cell density with an irregular thin trabecular pattern. High-grade dysplastic nodules may show histological features such as an increased nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio, nuclear hyperchromasia, irregular nuclear borders, mitoses, cell plates more than two cells, pseudogland formation, and a basophilic cytoplasm. They can be difficult to differentiate from a well-differentiated HCC, and on resection may even contain foci of HCC. So that takes us to hepatocellular carcinoma and the histopathology of these lesions. So first thing to talk about is its macroscopic appearance. And the gross morphology of hepatocellular carcinoma can be quite varied with a variety of different patterns. So there can be a solitary tumor. It can be multinodular. So as the name suggests, lots of different nodules of tumor from the primary tumor. It can be multicentric where you have multiple HCCs developing in different segments of the liver synchronously. There can be one dominant mass and then adjacent daughter nodules or intrahepatic metastases. There's a diffuse type of hepatocellular carcinoma where you have a diffuse infiltrating type picture of the cancer through a large area of the liver. And this often presents with quite a poorly defined lesion or infiltrating mass, which can be difficult to determine on imaging. And just to confuse you even further, there are two types of what are called small hepatocellular carcinomas. So these are tumors that are less than two centimeters in size. And these two types basically have to do with the prognosis. So there's a vaguely nodular type, which is thought to be an early type HCC, and this has a better prognosis. 
And these tumours usually don't have a capsule and they're well differentiated with a much lower risk of portal vein invasion or intrahepatic metastases. And then the distinctly nodular type is another type of small HCC, and these have a worse prognosis. So these usually have a clearly defined capsule, and their histopathology looks more like a well to moderately differentiated HCC. And these are more likely to have portal vein invasion, intrahepatic mets, and be hypervascular. So moving on now to the histopathological features of a HCC. These tumors are typically well vascularized and they have most of their blood supply from the hepatic artery, not from the portal vein. They will typically have wide trabeculae, a prominent acena pattern, typically have small cells with serological atypia and mitotic activity, and they have a preponderance for vascular invasion and loss of the normal cuffer cells and reticulin network. In terms of grading, the Edmondson grades 1 to 4 are used to grade hepatocellular carcinoma, and it can be reported as well-differentiated, moderately differentiated, poorly differentiated, or undifferentiated. Immunohistochemical stains can also be used to identify hepatocellular carcinoma, and these can be quite helpful when trying to differentiate a small tumor from those precancerous nodules we were talking about earlier. The immunomarkers that we look at are glycan 3, heat shock protein 70, and glutamine synthetase. And if any two of these are positive, then it's got up to a 73% sensitivity for HCC and a 100% specificity for resected specimens. Another thing that's useful to differentiate HCCs from regenerating nodules is that they are highly vascularized, as I mentioned before. And as HCCs progress, they lose the normal portal tracts and they develop all of these non-triad-related arterial vessels, which become the dominant supply of the tumor. And this angiogenesis is the hallmark of a HCC. Other features are that HCCs often have a surrounding capsule up to 80% of the time. And as I've mentioned, HCC loves to spread locally and invade blood vessels. And the likelihood of vascular invasion increases as the size of the tumor increases. It's really important when you're thinking about a HCC to look for evidence of vascular invasion and macroscopic evidence of portal vein invasion or tumor thrombus is the most important predictor of recurrence for HCC because once the tumors embolize into the vessels, they embolize throughout the liver via the portal veins. They can also cause biliary obstruction and this can be because of intraductal tumor extension or obstruction by a piece of necrotic tumor debris. And in terms of metastases, HCC usually metastasizes to the lung and can also metastasize to other sites such as the adrenals, the bones, lymph nodes, meninges, pancreas, brain, and kidney. There's a number of different subtypes of hepatocellular carcinoma that have been proposed by the WHO. There is quite a few of these and I once asked one of the HPV surgeon if we needed to know these and they said probably not for the exam. Knowing about the grades of the tumor, whether there's portal venous invasion is much more important than knowing all of the different histopathological subtypes. 
But saying that there is one subtype that has come up quite a lot in tutes, and this is the fibrolamella subtype, which is a variant of HCC that is generally found in younger patients who don't have a history of cirrhosis. I definitely recommend looking up a picture of this tumor because it has a pretty characteristic uh, imaging picture on radiology. These tumors are usually well demarcated and encapsulated, and they may have a central fibrotic area or central scar, which means they can be mistaken for focal nodular hyperplasia, which we talked about in the last podcast episode. They don't usually enhance on the T2 imaging, whilst an FNH would usually have enhancement of the central scar on T2 MRI. These tumors as well usually don't make AFP and therefore are more difficult to diagnose. They do have a better prognosis to a normal HCC, however, if they can be resected. So that's probably the one subtype to know about. So let's talk about the diagnosis and staging of hepatocellular carcinoma. Diagnosis can be a little bit challenging because HCCs can have a variable appearance on imaging, and especially in cirrhotic livers where the background parenchyma is heterogeneous and may have dysplastic or regenerating nodules, these can mimic a HCC and can make diagnosis difficult. There are a variety of differential diagnoses for liver lesions, as we talked about in the last episode, but definitely hemangiomas, confluent fibrosis, benign regenerative nodules, and those other types we were talking about, like dysplastic nodules, can mimic small HCCs on CT scan. So an alpha-feta protein is a blood test that we do for HCC, and it can help with diagnosis. Alpha-feta protein levels are high in fetal life, but then should be low as an adult. They can be secreted by hepatocellular carcinomas, and therefore the levels can rise. Levels that are higher than 400 nanograms per milliliter are diagnostic for HCC with a greater than 95% confidence. And if you have a patient with imaging showing a hypervascular mass and an AFP level more than 400, then this really is diagnostic for a hepatocellular carcinoma. The level of the AFP also correlates with the tumor biology. So a higher level means the tumor is more likely to be poorly differentiated, more likely to be more aggressive, and also has a higher likelihood of vascular invasion. There are other tumors that do also increase AFP levels, including non-seminomatous germinal tumors of the testes, hepatic gastric tumors, and very rarely neuroendocrine tumors. The imaging modalities used for hepatocellular carcinoma are essentially ultrasound, CT, and MRI of the liver. On ultrasound, HCCs typically appear hypoechoic compared to the normal liver parenchyma, but they can have variable appearance depending on the individual lesion, its size, and the cirrhosis and therefore echogenicity of the background liver parenchyma. Larger HCCs are often heterogeneous in nature because they'll have mixed fibrosis and fatty change and necrosis. And sometimes there can be a peripheral halo of low echogenicity, which can be due to focal fat sparing around the tumor. On CT scan, as we talked about in the last episode, a multi-phase CT with intravenous contrast is really important to look at the pattern of enhancement and washout of the lesion. 
HCCs typically are hypodense compared to the surrounding liver parenchyma on the non-contrast CT scan. And then they have brisk arterial enhancement due to those aberrant blood vessels from the hepatic artery, which we talked about under the pathology section of this podcast. In the portal venous phase, they have washout, which means in that portal venous phase, the lesion once again looks hypodense compared to the surrounding liver parenchyma. And this will continue into the delayed phase. And if you want to say that a lesion in the liver has washout, what you're saying is that this is a HCC. So make sure that you are seeing washout of the contrast in the portal venous phase. There is a scoring system for the appearance of lesions in the liver called the LIRADS scoring system. And this scoring system can only be used if the liver is cirrhotic. And this scores from LIRADS 1 to 5 lesions seen in the liver. So LIRADS 1 is where there's a definitely benign lesion and you would just go back to the normal surveillance with an ultrasound in six months. LIRADS 2 means probably benign and consider repeat diagnostic imaging in six months. LIRADS 3 is intermediate probability of malignancy and you should repeat the imaging in a shorter interval such as in three months. LIRADS 4 is probably HCC, and this should be reviewed at a multidisciplinary team meeting for further workup. And LIRADS 5 is definitely a HCC, and this should be presented at an MDT to talk about management. There are some other LIRADS uh, classifications. So LIRADS M means probably or definitely malignant, but not a HCC. Uh, LIRADS NC means not categorizable due to image degradation or emission. And LIRADS TIV means definite tumor in the vein, which as we talked about, HCC likes to invade vascular structures. On MRI, HCCs will have a similar appearance when given gadolinium contrast. And you want to have a look at the T1 images to look at the different phases with gadolinium contrast. So once again, the tumor will have brisk uptake on the arterial phase and will have washout on the portal venous and delayed imaging, resulting in a hypo-intense lesion compared to the surrounding parenchyma. On the T2 images, typically the HCCs will have increased signal and on the diffusion-weighted images, which is where they have a look at changes in blood flow to an area, the um, tumor will often light up because the blood flow is changed compared to the normal liver surrounding it. PET scans are not that great for HCC, but can sometimes be used to look for metastatic disease. And the last thing to talk about in terms of workup and diagnosis of HCCs is whether or not a biopsy is needed. Biopsy should only really be considered if a patient's been considered for non-operative therapies, because it can potentially seed the tumor along the biopsy or needle tract. And this happens in about one to 5% of cases. Most of the time, the diagnosis of a HCC can be made on the imaging findings, even if the AFP is not elevated in the presence of relevant risk factors. And so patients who are candidates for surgical resection or treatment don't necessarily need a pre-op biopsy. The biopsies have significant false negative rates, especially if the tumor is very small. So if you do do a biopsy, keep in mind that a negative result doesn't necessarily rule out malignancy. And as we mentioned earlier, those special stains, including glycan 3 heat shock protein 70, and glutamine synthase, can be used on biopsies to help with the diagnosis of HCC. 
And remember, I did mention earlier that the fibrolamella subtype of HCC can have a quite a strange picture on imaging. It's not homogenous, can be quite disorganized, partial enhancement and have quite a nasty appearance on imaging and doesn't necessarily have the enhancement pattern that a normal HCC will have. So that's something to keep in mind as well when looking at the imaging. In terms of staging of disease, there's no universally adopted system for staging. Some key things to keep in mind, I guess, when looking at a hepatocellular carcinoma is the severity of the underlying liver disease, the size of the tumor, whether there's any extension into adjacent structures or major vessels, the presence of metastatic disease and the patient's performance status or fitness for any intervention. The staging systems that exist include a TNM staging system, but from my experience, this is not really used that commonly. More frequently, the Barcelona Clinic Liver Cancer Staging System is used, and also the Milan Criteria, which has to do with liver transplantation of hepatocellular carcinoma. In terms of TNM staging, I'm just going to briefly run through this. So T1 is a solitary tumor without vascular invasion. T2 is a solitary tumor with vascular invasion or multiple tumors, none more than five centimeters. T3A is multiple tumors more than five centimeters. T3B is a single tumor or multiple tumors of any size involving a major branch of the portal vein or hepatic vein. T4 is tumor with direct invasion of adjacent organs other than the gallbladder or with perforation of the visceral peritoneum. N1 is regional lymph node metastases and M1 is distant metastases. The one that I've used much more frequently or seen used much more frequency is the Barcelona Clinic Liver Cancer Staging System. And this is very useful because it splits patients up into groups based on the tumor, but also based on their underlying liver function, which is really the two main factors that are going to determine what your treatments are. And if you have a look at a flowchart of this staging system, you'll see that it also finishes with treatment options and likelihood of survival. So it's a really clinically handy tool. So very early stage or stage zero, uh, single tumors, less than two centimeters in size, in patients with preserved liver function and an ECOG of zero. Stage A is an early stage tumor, and this is a single or up to three nodules, all less than or equal to three centimeters in a patient with preserved liver function and an ECOG of zero. Stage B or intermediate stage tumors is where there's multifocal disease with more than one lesion with at least one over three centimeters or more than three lesions, regardless of their size. And again, patients can have a ECOG of zero and can have child pew status either A to C. Stage C is advanced disease. And these patients have symptomatic tumors and invasive or metastatic disease. So they will have tumors with vascular invasion or nodal or metastatic disease. They can have a child pew A to C liver function, and an ECOG of 1 to 2. And stage D is end-stage disease. And this is not a radiological stage, it's only a clinical stage. And so these are patients presenting terminally with child pew C cirrhosis and a performance status or ECOG that's greater than 2. 
And then the last staging system we should be aware about for hepatocellular carcinoma is the Milan criteria, which, as I mentioned earlier, is basically looking at liver transplant for HCC. And this criteria is trying to identify patients or select patients that have a more than 75% chance of a five-year survival after transplant. And the Milan criteria says that patients who would be eligible for a transplant are those that have a solitary tumor that's less than five centimeters in size or three tumors all less than three centimeters in size with no portal vein invasion or evidence of distant metastatic disease. So last but not least is the management of hepatocellular carcinoma. This is actually really complicated because it takes into consideration a number of factors, which I've already briefly touched on. So first things first is the tumor itself, how big it is, whether there's multiple other nodules, the extent through the liver, whether there's any involvement of adjacent structures or major vascular structures, and if there's any evidence of metastatic disease. The second thing to consider is the liver itself and the liver function, as these tumors often arise in livers that are cirrhotic. And if you're thinking about a resection or most of the other types of treatment we have for HCC, they are going to impact on the liver function. If you remove part of the liver, obviously you're reducing the overall function of the liver. If you use microwave ablation or chemotherapy, you're also going to harm the function of the liver. And so this also needs to be taken into consideration. In general, as with most of the cancer treatments we've discussed so far on the podcast, there are medical, interventional, surgical, and palliative options for the treatment of hepatocellular carcinoma. And it's really important with HCC that treatment is managed in a multidisciplinary fashion, both with oncologists, surgeons, radiation oncologists, and gastroenterologists, in order to try and have the best outcome for these patients. So in terms of curative intent, there's three treatment options that are potentially curative, and this includes tumor ablation, resection, and transplant. However, without transplant, recurrence is quite common because of this concept of there being a field change in the liver. So the changes or inflammatory process that has led to the development of a HCC is going to be present in other parts of the liver. And so new tumors or recurrent tumors can form. So I'm going to start by talking about a few considerations for the different treatment modalities that we have for HCC. And once I've talked about that, I'm going to go into the Barcelona Clinic liver cancer staging system, which has a little flow chart that talks about what to do for tumors that are in each of those stages we talked about earlier. And again, I'd suggest you have a look at a picture of this flow chart for that part of the discussion. So to kick us off, I want to talk about surgery for resectable tumors in patients with normal liver function, so non-cirrhotic patients. For patients who have resectable disease that can be removed safely with a sufficient functional liver remnant being left at the end, for these patients, resection is the treatment of choice. Unlike the group we'll be talking about next, which is those patients with cirrhosis, it's more likely that these patients will be able to have their tumors removed and have sufficient liver left to have adequate liver function at the end. These patients wouldn't be considered routinely for a transplant, 
The role of transplant is more in patients who don't have good functional underlying liver and have HCCs because you're fixing both of their problems, which is their liver failure and their cancer. Transplant would only be considered in this group with preserved liver function if a partial liver resection wasn't possible due to anatomical factors, for example, or if there was going to be insufficient liver remnant after resection for adequate function, or as a rescue treatment if there's a recurrence that's not amenable to resection. Surgery in cirrhotic patients is a little bit more complex in that tumors are most often multifocal at diagnosis and up to 60% of patients are not resectable at diagnosis. Cirrhosis itself is a risk factor for the development of postoperative complications and these patients are obviously at risk of decompensated liver failure. And in addition, they need a larger remnant liver to be left behind because their liver is not functioning normally. Obviously, with HCC, you want to do an oncological resection and have clear margins. So this means that you're going to want to be taking more liver parenchyma. But in a cirrhotic liver, you're also balancing that about the need to leave behind sufficient liver um, and to spare parenchyma that can be spared. So it can be a tricky balance. And of course, Recurrence is common in the liver that's left behind because of that field change that we talked about. There are definitely some contraindications to resection in patients with HCC and liver cirrhosis. So child PC cirrhosis means that you basically cannot do a liver resection. And it would be pretty borderline to do a major liver resection in a child PUB cirrhotic. Other factors that need to be weighed in that can make liver surgery much more difficult and even dangerous is if patients have significant portal hypertension. So this is evidence of varices, splenomegaly, ascites, a patent umbilical vein or platelets less than 100 because you might remove the tumor, but you are not fixing the portal hypertension. And in fact, you may make it worse. And this is associated with higher rates of postoperative morbidity, mortality, and reduced long-term survival. So the other treatment options that we have for the treatment of hepatocellular carcinoma is ablation of the tumor. And looking at the Barcelona Clinic liver cancer staging system, ablation comes in under patients with very, very early stage small tumors, less than two centimeters with preserved liver function. And also for patients with up to three tumors, less than three centimeters in size, who have associated comorbidities that do not make them a candidate for transplant. There's a number of different types of ablation that can be used, and these can be done percutaneously laparoscopic assisted or even in an open fashion. And these include microwave ablation, which is what is used most commonly in my institution. And this is often done with a laparoscopic approach. The mechanism here is that the heating effect of the microwaves at a high frequency, which is applied with a needle electrode, which is inserted into the tumor, causes tissue necrosis because the proteins denature leading to tissue death. This is useful in small tumors, usually less than two centimeters, because in larger tumors, there's a chance of incomplete ablation. And it's also important to know that the microwave ablation can cause damage to surrounding tissues. So for tumors near important structures, such as the hilum or large vessels, you have to be careful that there's no damage to those structures as well. Other ablation methods include radiofrequency ablation, which is where 
energy or radio waves are applied to the tumor again through a needle which is inserted into the tumor. I haven't seen this used, um, but apparently it works similar to microwave ablation and has similar issues in that you can get uh, thermal injury to surrounding structures. Once again, this method is useful for smaller tumors, usually around two or three centimeters max. Um, And with both of these particular methods, there's a risk of tumor seeding along the ablation tract. So the tract should be ablated on the way out as well. Cryotherapy is another option for ablation of tumors, and this has a good predictable area of necrosis for hepatocellular carcinomas, even those that are up to three centimeters. Um, It does have complications associated with it, such as cryoshock phenomenon, where you get thrombocytopenia and disseminated intravascular coagulation, as well as an acute respiratory distress syndrome, which does not sound very fun. And it also has a risk of damaging adjacent structures due to the cold effect. So things like the colon or um, bile duct or other vascular structures that may be nearby and can also cause bleeding. The pathophysiology or mechanism of cryotherapy is that freezing leads to extracellular ice, which causes water to be drawn from the cells, which dehydrates the cells, leading to cellular damage. And the last ablation method, which I don't think is used that commonly again, is percutaneous ethanol injection or alcohol injection into the tumour. Again, this is good for small tumours and works via cellular dehydration protein denaturation and thrombosis of small vessels. For all of these ablation therapies, some obvious contraindications are a severe coagulopathy and also patients who have very poor liver function. So child PC cirrhosis definitely wouldn't be considered for these particular methods. So a couple of other treatments to talk about are transarterial treatments. And these are transarterial embolization and transarterial chemoembolization, which is also called TACE. And basically both of these treatments take advantage of the fact that HCCs rely on the arterial supply from the hepatic artery and that that's where they get most of their blood supply from. So transarterial embolization is where you embolize either the hepatic artery or a branch of the hepatic artery leading to the tumor. And this is done via endovascular means. The idea being that this will lead to tumor necrosis. Obviously, it will also affect the liver as well, and it's contraindicated if you have portal vein thrombosis or the portal venous system is blocked because obviously you're then blocking off all of the blood supply to the liver, which is never going to be good in a patient with or without liver dysfunction pre-existing. In addition, it doesn't have very good long-term outcomes because the tumor just grows new blood supply but it can be used as a palliative procedure. For transarterial chemoembolization or TACE, this is something that can be used for inoperable HCCs or in a palliative setting um, or in recurrent HCC. And again, contraindications are main portal vein thrombosis and severe underlying liver failure. And what TACE entails is an injection of a chemotherapy agent Usually that is suspended in a poppy seed oil, which gets retained within the tumor. So it doesn't just pass through and then go to the systemic circulation. And then the feeding artery of the tumor is then embolized after this, with the idea being that you get a higher concentration of the drug within the tumor 
and that you reduce the systemic side effects of the treatment. And this can lead to necrosis of the tumor as well um, in up to 85% of cases. So now that we know about all the different potential treatment options for hepatocellular carcinoma, I'm just going to go through the Barcelona Clinic Liver Cancer Staging System and the recommendations that that makes for treatment. Saying that though, in practice, this isn't always strictly followed, so patients really should be discussed at an MDT. For example, patients with more than three tumors or larger tumors still might benefit from resection and have comparable outcomes to patients who are transplanted, um, especially if transplant isn't available, for example. Anyway, so getting back into the management depending on the staging. So for very early stage tumors, so these were tumors that were single, less than two centimeters in size in patients with preserved liver function and good ECOG, you want to say whether the patient's potentially a candidate for a liver transplant. If the answer is no, then these tumors can be ablated. But saying that if they're a young, fit, healthy patient, there is some evidence that they have a better long-term survival with resection compared to ablation. So that might be factored into the decision-making here. If they're a potential candidate for a liver transplant, then you want to have a look at their portal pressure and their bilirubin. If that's normal, then you would resect the tumor. If that's increased and they have no other medical comorbidities, then you could consider a transplant. If they have portal hypertension or elevated bilirubin, but they also have comorbidities that make them not fit for a transplant, then you would consider ablating the tumor. So back to early stage tumors. So this is stage A, where there's single or up to three tumors or less than three centimeters in size, but with preserved liver function and good ECOG. If there's a solitary tumor and the patient has good liver function, then you would consider a resection. If there's a solitary tumor, but the patient has increased portal hypertension or high bilirubin, then you would consider whether this patient was a candidate for transplant. If they were, then you would refer them for transplant. And if they weren't, then you would ablate the tumor. If there's up to three nodules or less than three centimeters in size, um, then you would consider them for a transplant if they were fit for it. And if not, then you would ablate the tumors. The next group are stage B tumors. These are intermediate stage where there's lots of tumors, multinodular, but preserved liver function and good ECOG. And these patients would be considered for chemoembolization. So essentially they have non-resectable tumors. And so you would offer them chemoembolization. Advanced stage, stage C tumors, where there's locally advanced tumors with portal vein invasion and extra hepatic spread, but preserved liver function Um, and an ECOG of one to two, you might consider offering these patients systemic therapy. And when we talk about systemic therapy, this includes chemotherapy as well as some targeted drugs. Obviously, patients who have advanced cirrhosis aren't going to be candidates for chemotherapy because of their liver function. So they have to have some preserved liver function. So the frontline systemic therapy for patients with advanced HCCs and preserved liver function are serafinib combined with a newer agent such as bevacizumab, which is a VEGF therapy, or atezolizumab, just because these names are so easy to pronounce for a podcast, um, which is a type of immune checkpoint inhibitor. And there are lots of other types of monoclonal antibodies that can be considered as second, third, and fourth line chemotherapy agents. 
And then the last stage is the terminal stage. Patients with end-stage liver failure, such as child PUC, cirrhosis, and a poor ECOG status. And these patients really just need best supportive care and palliative therapy. The Barcelona Clinic Liver Cancer Staging System also talks a little bit about survival for these different types of tumours. So for patients who have treated very early stage tumours and early stage A tumours, their survival is out past five years. For those with intermediate stage B tumours, they have a survival that's between two and five years. For patients with advanced stage tumours, they have a survival that's about a year. And for patients with terminal tumours, they have approximately a three-month survival. The variables that are associated with a worse prognosis include portal vein thrombosis, an alpha-feta protein more than 35, a bilirubin more than 50, an ALP two times normal, extensive multinodular disease, and child PUB or C cirrhosis. Recurrence is common for patients, um, with about 40% of patients having a recurrence within the first year, 60% at three years, and 80% at five years. And this has to do with that field change that we talked about before. Recurrence is often multifocal, and in about 15% of patients will be associated with distant metastatic disease. Anatomical resections and margins of at least two centimetres around the HCC are associated with an improved survival. And tumours that have vascular invasion are poorly differentiated or have satellite nodules have a higher risk of an early recurrence. There's no good evidence that neoadjuvant or adjuvant treatments reduce the risk of recurrence of tumours in HCC. And really, it's important that these patients go on a active screening regime after resection or after treatment in order to have early detection and prompt treatment of any recurrences in the liver. And in patients who've had resections, they can potentially have repeat surgery. And if they're not candidates for surgery, then they can have ablation treatments or chemoembolization or even a liver transplant to improve their long-term outcomes. Obviously, another consideration in this group of patients is that a good gastroenterologist and treatment of their liver failure is also going to improve their overall outcome, as about 50 to 60% of patients with HCC will have a death related to the HCC, but progressive hepatic failure is responsible for 30% of deaths and GIT bleeding is responsible for 10% of deaths in these patients. In terms of a follow-up program, patients should be closely monitored. So in the first two years, a four-monthly imaging modality, such as a CT or MRI with multi-phase imaging and an AFP blood test, then stretched out to six monthly for two years, and then yearly thereafter would be a good post-resection follow-up plan. The other thing to consider is that some patients although very rare, I think, from what I understand in Australia, may undergo a liver transplant to treat their HCC as well as remove the cirrhotic liver. And these patients have no cirrhosis, so that field change is not as much of an issue for them. So this also decreases their risk of recurrence in the future. And that brings us to the end of this episode on hepatocellular carcinoma. 
This is actually quite a difficult topic to talk about because there's so many different individual considerations for these patients. Thanks for sticking around. And as always, please remember to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast as it makes it easier for other people to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>